When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown live show slash podcast for tomorrow. As always, I'm joined by Jared Weiss of The Athletic. We've had two spirited games, sort of, at least. I think the game was were spirited the first one. The score wasn't so spirited, but Jared, uh, thanks for staying up with us tonight. I can't believe I'm still going. It's been a long day here in the Celtics Nation. Uh, yes, it has. I'm sorry the dream is gone and dead and over with, but uh, how are you feeling about that? I really don't care. Um, yeah, that that team was doomed. So it was, it was, there were no surprises. Uh, the exit meetings today were probably the most interesting part of the whole playoff run. Anyway, Marcus Smart saying that it's bullshit that Kyrie Irving is being blamed for the Celtics woes, and Jalen Brown really taking a leadership position. That was that was very fascinating. So that was actually the most interesting thing. And tune into the Athletic uh, tomorrow morning, everybody, so you can read my uh, my write up on that. Okay, uh, always good to know that. And don't forget, over on YouTube as you're watching, uh, you can always ask questions there or on Periscope, and we're going to get to them as many as we can. Last, uh, our show, last show was an awesome YouTube experience, which is rare, but uh, again, very encouraging. And um, so let's, let's discuss this a little bit. Okay, we, the game itself, I, I took some notes. Do you have any, uh, any thoughts uh, yet before, we, uh, before I jump into these? Oh no, you try, you go right ahead. I want to hear what you have to say. Okay, well, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of run through what I wrote down and see what jogs my memory because now it's been a few hours, but um, and I'm hopped up on Sudafed. But anyway, Butler is the best player on the floor on offense. That's what I wrote. Not bad. I'm also realizing now my mic isn't on, so I'm gonna fix that. Thanks for the uh, the update. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Butler. It's been that way. It seems like this entire series, though, right? Yeah, I mean, he's certainly the, like the most aggressive, and then in that aggression, successful. Whether or not like they're the best shots or not, or part of the offense, it doesn't matter. He's just you know successful in making a lot of those shots and and sort of imposing his will more than Embiid, who I suppose it was his sickness that sort of got him malaised and not really involved as much as he would normally be. And uh, and then Simmons was interesting because he had some good numbers scoring wise. I know he had like I think he had four offensive rebounds. And at least two of those were tipping. So, he, you know, he was doing damage like on the offensive rebounding, which is good because he's, when he's not, he's marginalized on offense a lot anyway. Um, but it didn't feel that impactful to me, those points, uh, as much as like, you know, for instance, Butler. Like he was a real key there. Uh-oh, are you there? No, we lost Jared for some reason. He must have changed his settings on his mic and he's frozen. Well, I'm sure he'll come back to life at some point. Um, so, hey, this is not my first rodeo. Let's, uh, we'll press on until we find him back. Uh, here's another thing I wrote about that, and then we'll go to some questions in a minute. The idea that Gasol couldn't, uh, can't get a shot in the post against Tobias Harris is ridiculous. So I wrote that, and it certainly is a couple times where they throw the ball into, into Gasol. He's got a huge size advantage, and he just either turns over his right shoulder and he's under the basket too far, doesn't have a good angle to maybe use the glass. It's really, really frustrating that they can't capitalize on that. Um, on on that end with the uh, with Toronto, so that is really kind of a troubling thing for me. 
Um, check the Philly offensive rebounds. So I wrote yes, which they did. They, they out-rebounded them a lot, which actually brings up an interesting point I was thinking about earlier uh, during the game, this last game. You know, Thibodeau came in with the uh, Celtics as defensive coordinator and, and installed ice defense, which forces the ball handler away from the pick and down to the baseline. And um, he also sort of got everyone away from going for offensive rebounds in an effort to get back on D. Like that became so paramount to everything that um, that, that they didn't want to ever go for offensive rebounds. And I kind of think that that's a marginalized idea now. I think that it's, it's, it's old school at this point and it needs to be gone away from, partly because... Some of the best three-pointers that you get um, out of the offense are off of offensive rebounds. So it would only go to – it would make sense that you would, uh, you know, go to the offensive rebound and get more of those. So that's what I'm thinking is the key here as far as um, – what we need to do with um, with getting offensive rebounds. And I think that's what the, the Sixers are showing. I certainly think in tonight's game, the last game, we saw a lot of offensive re- rebounds too. Um, we might have Jared back. Are you back, Jared? I can hear you. Can let Oh, me, wow. All right, we're back. So no They can't worries. see me, but they know what I look like. Yeah. Hopefully it's good enough. Yeah. Oh, there I am. You're there. So anyhow, uh, all right, so we got you back. Uh, you missed a little bit of my, my analysis during the, uh, the Raptors and the Sixers a little bit here. But um, I was enjoying it. I actually I like this off this tangent that you've gone on about oh. trying to bring back the offensive rebound emphasis. Well, yeah, what you do know, you think I, about that? Yeah, I was around those Celtics teams that were you know that were employing a lot of the tips principles. He kind of laid that groundwork there, and then went into that with Chicago. And so the way that Doc Rivers always explained it back then was that transition defense is the most important component here, and we can let go of offensive rebounding. Those teams didn't shoot a lot of threes. They had a couple guys that were really good 18-foot shooters, so they weren't prioritizing that offensive rebound to kick out as much. I think now wings and guards have become such good uh, rebounders in the NBA. I feel like the, the, the significant advantage of the big being the rebounder on the floor has gone down, probably just because the emphasis of the big has gone down. And so because there's more wings on the floor than ever, I think crashing the offensive glass, especially from like different angles, rather than just trying to get two people on the block, trying to fight and grapple in the trenches. It's more about getting a box out going on, which frees up a wing to try to crash in or a guard to try to crash in. We saw tonight Jamal Murray had some great rebounds. Yeah, uh, he's 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 really good with that, obviously. Um, so yeah, I think that wings and guards prioritizing crashing the glass more and maybe even bigs still prioritizing getting back in transition defense is something that we could see increase but i still think as great as it is to try to get a second chance and a kick out for an open three teams are trying to push the pace more so i think teams are actually emphasizing transition defense even more than before so i don't think teams are going to really want to take away from that emphasis. Yeah, I, I, but I wonder if maybe out of all this, you end up having like two bigs again, like two almost traditional bigs that are going to do that. You have your three guys who will space on those shots to get the kickouts. You know, somebody just sent me uh, an article, uh, Radius Athletics, my buddy Randy over there in Texas just sent me an article uh, in Australia. They're, they're playing with all five guys just crashing the offensive glass and seeing what happens. Like, is it, do you ultimately, it's almost like onside kick every time or whatever. Just, you know, you might end up benefiting from it over the long run. So it's intriguing, but I certainly think that, you know, we got to get back to more of a balance. Whereas I feel like in that 2010 era, there just it was no balance. It was simply get back. Don't even look for those offensive rebounds. And um, I just don't, I just see those like more and more uh, of these teams that are getting these second chance opportunities. It's just too valuable to not go after. 
Well, the interesting interesting thing has been that statistically there doesn't seem to be a big difference in creating transition frequency based off of three pointers as opposed to other long distance shots. But we do see more long rebounds that can turn into offensive rebounds because of three pointers. So I think that offensive rebounders kind of more at like the second level are becoming more and more uh, a part of the game. For sure. Well, let's give a shout out to Jiglo Puff out there who is moderating the chat over on YouTube. Again, he's always there. Amazing. And, um, I, you know, I see uh, an, actually a good question out here about uh, hedging. And if I could find it real quick. Oh, yes. It's uh, somebody, I think it's in Mandarin, so I can't read the name. But it says, should the Nuggets continue playing the hard hedge? Which is an interesting question. And we'll jump around because, hey, this is, the, this is YouTube and the Internet. Um, the Nuggets continue playing the hard hedge. You know, it's funny because to me, Jokic is dropping, so he's not hedging. Um, I think that hard hedging is just a mistake no matter what, only because when the guy guarding the, the ball screener comes up that high and he has to sprint back to try and get his man, he like he ends up running into the ball handler's man, and it's almost like screens him. So I think that that whole intersection of stuff becomes too complicated to navigate, and I'm always in favor of just dropping the big, forcing him away from the screen anyway, like an ice defense, and, and just taking your chances on that. What do you think? I don't mind when they do it with either Millsap or Craig, who I haven't seen Craig do it a lot, but those guys have the foot speed and the balance to pull it off. The reason you do it, obviously, is just because you want to try to force Dame back to the 30-foot zone because we see that Dame, if he's coming over a screen without a guy right on him, he's shooting every single time. Although we saw tonight that he was hitting, he hit, I think, at least one, if not two 30-footers as well, coming over a canter screen. Um, But but when they're showing on the screens – Dame is able to kind of he'll he'll take the blitz and try to drag it out towards the sideline and then find Cantor on the short roll and Cantor will either try to take it into the paint or he'll swing it to Rodney Hood or whomever is on the other wing and they're able to get a lot of good ball movement out of that. So um, I still like Denver trying to just go into a drop scheme and because, you know, Cantor isn't going to shoot high. So you can do a deep drop against them as long as the point guard defender is going to get whoever's defending Dame is going to get over the screen as well as possible. And that's why Dame kept trying to get a switch on Jamal Murray and credit to Denver. They did a good job of trying to resist getting Jamal switched onto him. Great analysis. I agree with all of that. Uh, you know what? Let's move over to the Periscope. Good question about the Sixers and the Raptors. Quintessential asks, do you think the Sixers figured anything or did Toronto just not play that hard? Uh, so I hate watching this series because you can't figure out what's going on, right, between these two teams. It, it, from one game to the next, you think you figure it out, and then they, they, lay, they crap the bed. Um, and again, you know, the Raptors did not – they actually looked okay, and it kind of felt like they were going to absorb the initial run by the Sixers with all the energy they have, the home crowd, and then just slowly take control of that game. Um, Nick Nurse did not have a good game, uh, I thought, and that was sort of the issue. The, the, by the middle of the third or toward the end of the third – um, they went on a run. They, they cut it to eight or so, and then the um, Sixers went on a run, and they didn't call a timeout. And he was like three possessions late calling it, and it went from like a nine-point lead to a 17-point lead. Uh, and the problem was they weren't running offense at that point. And that's when you got to cut it off right away and say, call a timeout, run it, you know, drop a, a set. And I thought that that was a huge turning point, and it just was like, what are you doing, man? Like that should have been obvious in the playoff game. Yeah, I mean, Toronto, the only time they really showed life was that – 
kind of early-ish uh, second quarter run there where they were really working Ibaka, and apparently Nick is just tired of the show and wants to run away. But they did a good job of trying to get like you know deep pick-and-roll penetration so that Ibaka could get weird little floaters, finding a way to keep him involved. Welcome back, Nick. And then, of course, you know, Kawhi had some great transition play as well. But Toronto just seemed kind of listless the entire time. And uh, shout out to my guy Michael Pina who uh, had a really a really fascinating feature in uh, SP, I think it was with SP Nation today yeah. uh, about Ben Simmons being like technically the fastest player in the NBA, and Ben Simmons played as if he read Pina's piece today, which hey maybe he did. Where Simmons was just trying to really kind of run past everybody, and even in the half court he was really used. He just he was playing with determination, and maybe that's the difference, and that's what makes. Simmons, a great half court player as his career evolves, is that he just plays with this pure aggression where he's just really trying to like initiate contact and use his speed to just blow by guys. Because we were seeing so many plays where he would start from the elbow and just get by everybody. When usually in the past, he kind of just tries to like dribble around and then jump and throw some weird little handoff that always looks kind of like he doesn't even know how to play basketball. And so this was the game where I thought Simmons looked the most coherent of any really any playoff game so far this year uh, this year yeah I, I agree I, and I feel like yeah he had his most uh, he, you know he imposed his will uh, most on this game and it really helps him and again yeah when he is going full speed he is now at his best right where they don't have to worry about him sagging off and then not letting him shoot and they get stuck in the dunker spot and all this different stuff so obviously they got to run as much as they possibly can it's what we saw I just did a, a video for the athletic by the way so you should go over there and check it out where I broke down yeah. how the bucks uh, beat the Celtics and basically, they went from leading the league in the, in the regular season with 20, uh, 21% fast break frequency. They got that over 26% against the Celtics. And primarily because when they did set it up, they had a terrible half-court offense that was like would have been 29th in the league uh, in points per possession. And then when they were obviously in transition, it was much higher like where they were in the normal regular season. So it's almost like had they not pushed the pace as much as they possibly could, they I don't know if they win the series, even though it seemed pretty easy for the, the Bucks to do it. So... Uh, it's paramount for the Sixers to do the same thing, only because yeah, when Ben Simmons starts to wander and get in, and his man can get in the way easily, uh, it really bogs down their offense, and you can't afford to have that kind of stuff. Um, you know, when you uh, are in a seventh game in the in the playoffs, Omari Confer, Confer, let's give him a little shout out. He just gave a super a super chat uh, something, and uh, thank you. That was really cool. One ninety nine. So uh, that, that way, that is a thing if you want to do on YouTube where you can get your uh, questions up faster by uh, by doing a little uh, super chat. Um, it, uh, quickly yes. to interject, it's really easy to have 25 of your possessions be fast break when your opponent's missing about 50 percent or no, 70 percent of their shots. I mean, Boston yeah. was missing so many shots, so many open threes. You know, obviously, if you get the ball to Giannis and there's only three defenders in front of him that's a fast break every single time and he's going to get to the rim almost every time so that's that was I think a huge part of that was just that the Celtics shot really poorly and obviously Denver's defense deserves credit I mean not Denver Milwaukee's defense deserves credit they're the best defense in the NBA for a reason that was very apparent right well you know just like the Celtics are the best defense in the NBA Wix is actually the best uh, thing, uh, best platform you can use to design a website. And if you need a website that has to look and function beautifully, that's where Wix comes in. Join over 140 million people who have used Wix to design their site, and you'll be choosing from over 500 stunning templates or build one from scratch. Jared, you got a Wix website, don't you? I don't, but I should make one. I, you know, I 
I'm a I'm a professional uh, MBA writer and analyst. Shouldn't I have my own website? I feel like I'm overdue to build myself a Wix website. Right, especially because everything is automated, optimized for any device. They have built-in SEO tools. Do you know what SEO stands for? S- shit, I don't know. Search engine optimization. Optimization. Yes. Oh my god! Wow, so you, it's you, late. Yeah, it's one thirty on the East Coast right now. Right. Well, your website will get found easily. You don't need to know any code to make it function, and however you like, you can start and publish a website for free. And right now, you can get ten percent off their premium services if you go to Wix.com/podcast. So don't miss out on building your next site. It's an incredibly easy process. The interface can walk you through it step by step, and you'll have something to be proud of and up and running in no time. So click on the Wix.com slash podcast and push the limits of web design with Wix. And guess what? That uh, uh, link is not the right one. I think I have an old script. So I'm going to look for that while we talk about (laughs) something else I want to talk about, which is people, starters on teams in this round who shouldn't be starters on a conference finals team. Okay, well, here's a great place to start because we just got a question from, uh, let me find the person, Andrew Lee, who has an, like an actual standard name instead of a weird nickname. But Andrew Lee asked, where would the Blazers be with Nurkic starting right now? So Ooh. let's talk about Enos Cantor versus Nurkic. Okay. Um, where would they be? Well, also, you have to look in the context of they have Nurkic and then they have Cantor coming off the bench, right? And that's a, that would be a really good one-two punch for them, which they had uh, when he got there. So... Um, are they better? I mean, listen, it's a game seven. Do, do the do the Blazers win in six games with Nurkic? Then, based on what we, I seen? mean, the, the fact that they can beat Denver at all, I think, is showing that right now it's not making a huge difference. They would they would definitely be better. I don't think there's anything that Cantor does that's better than what Nurkic does. I think they're equally effective in the pick and roll. They're equally effective scoring down low. Nurkic is a smarter, more flexible defender. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's any advantage that Kander can provide for them. I think that they're lucky in that this is a series in which the opponent doesn't go small. The opponent plays big most of the time, which plays in the Kander pretty well. So they got lucky with this matchup. I mean, I don't think it's going to work out nearly as well for them against Golden State, unless Duran is out for that whole series, assuming they win, of course, and they're playing and Golden State is playing with a center out there most of the time. But I mean, they've they got lucky. They Canner has been playing hard. He's been playing not terribly <laughs> stupid, and his scoring has been great. I mean, he's he's running the pick and roll pretty well with Dame, and that's I think the biggest thing they wanted was they just needed they needed somebody to get physical penetration, which sounds like a weird Whoa. sex thing to say it. They needed someone to be strong and get through the middle of the defense. And they have that because they don't have anybody on the roster that does that, except for now that Ronnie Hood has emerged, of course. And I guess we could even throw Ronnie Hood into this category since he's, it seems like part of the finishing lineup, even if he's not going to be starting. Yes, uh, I, that's a, all very good points. Um, the Wix website, I believe, maybe is right. Wix.com slash podcast. It seems too general for me, but I. <laughs> Jared after dark. It. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yes. And that was a little bit r- r- risky or racy. Uh, not unlike what uh, Steve Kerr got caught yesterday. Not caught. He did it on purpose. He, he dropped a couple F-bombs uh, in the post-game conference. Did you see that? I did. By the way, I feel like I should have asked you this before we started. Am I allowed to drop F-bombs on the live show here? Yeah, sure. Why get not? To- eh, I don't, think, I don't okay. have a problem with it. I mean, We'll you save know, it for later, though. I don't have a problem normally with... Um, whatchamacallit, with uh, swearing like in the pod. This is the live show, YouTube, whatever. But hey, 
Um, we also have some other uh, business to take care of, although it doesn't tell me who I got. There's uh, another super chat came in here. This is amazing. Oh, what? Shout out Larry Turner, $5 donation. Wow. Oh, that's where, okay. I saw that. Uh, there it is. Um, but I didn't see the name. Okay. But we also have, um, we have some orange things to take care of, right? When they jump, pop up as orange, I got to take care of those. So let's do that real quick. Uh, Kalish Krishnan asks, uh, do you think the Raptors will win game seven? Cause I do. Uh, I always go with the home game, home team. Although I think I feel like in recent years the home team isn't ninety five percent guaranteed to win that game, but I still feel like it's they're going to win at home, don't you? Yeah, I mean, has home team been indicative in that series? I think it's really yeah. just what side of the of the bed does Pascal Siakam or Tobias Harris or Joel Embiid wake up on? Really, I mean, those are the guys that are, I think are the biggest variable for each team. There is. I don't think there's any way to possibly predict what's going to happen in that game seven. Like I expect Denver to win game seven. I think that they're going to at home, they're going to be performing at their best. They're going to be executing a little bit better on defense. They'll be able to execute their game game plan better, but Philly in Toronto, there are just so many things all over the place. I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. I would, I guess I would lean Philly just because everybody's playing so well at this point, but Philly seems like the kind of team that could just flop on the road. Yeah. Well, no. yeah. And also, you know, is Embiid going to come and play and not get sick or whatever? Um, you know, it, it's it's hard to figure that out because Gasol at various times looks like he can handle Embiid no problem. And then other times Gasol can't even score on Gary Harris or on, jeez, uh, not Gary Harris, on uh, Tobias Harris. Um, so it, it's I can't even know if I want to make a prediction. I mean, that's why the only thing I can say is home because uh, it's been such a wild series without a, a real flow to it. So uh, Kevin Tanako uh, asks, what is hedging for casuals who want to improve their b-ball IQ? So hedging is when if I'm guarding the, the ball screener, okay, so then a pick and roll, I will step up kind of high above my man to force the ball handler away from, like, so he can't turn the corner around the pick the ball screen. And uh, it's an old school thing. It's how we used to always do it. There was no notion of ice defense where you would drop back. Uh, you used to demand, no matter who it was or how slow the guy was, you used to demand you, the center had to go out there and hedge and make the point guard turn, like, more towards the, the half-court line. Uh, and they finally figured out that, you know, these big slow guys can't handle that so well in the NBA, and then it's trickled down. And an important differentiation, sometimes you'll hear the word show. I've I've always heard a mix of some people think that those are interchangeable, but I've always understood it to be that a hedge is when you kind of basically just go over the screen just to show that you're there, while a show is where you get your entire body over the screen and you actually quickly stop the ball handler as opposed to a hedge, which is kind of just like quickly like peeking out just to kind of make the ball handler go over you, while a show is like almost like a single man trap before retreating and then letting the ball handler's defender catch up to the ball handler. Well, you know, the funny thing is I, I'm actually, I would flip that to me. Hedging would be the hard hedge. You go up over the, the screener and then show would just be, you kind of more flat and letting the ball handler kind of go like, you know, peak or whatever, but you let him go more um, uh, horizontal or more uh, lateral than, than up and down. But either way, those are all, you know, basically the same thing. And uh, I, I don't know. I would, I don't even coach that anymore. I don't coach uh, hedging really. I, nope. I coach either blast them, which is like the double, team or drop yeah there's very few teams that are doing that at this point um cleveland was doing it with kevin love for the last couple of years under ty Lue in the finals um mm -hmm. but that's 
pretty much it. I can't think of any other like major competitive team that was running that scheme. Yeah, right. Uh, and it, it stands out when you see it, at least for me. Xerxes is back, and he says he asked in game three uh, the same question as he asked now. My prediction for game, the Raps game, I guess we kind of just covered that. Uh, and do you think Kawhi will stay if we, get in, if they, if we, if the Raptors get in the uh, East Finals? Man, I mean, certainly if they don't get in these finals, we know Kawhi is gone. I think we know he's gone anyway, right? What do you think? I think the finals is maybe that level that he needs to get to to reconsider. Uh, If if they get to the East finals and then Giannis and Milwaukee smokes them. I don't know. It doesn't seem like that his decision is too based on success, unless obviously they like have a really good finals run and everyone's saying, let's come back next. We really make it happen. Um, I think that he's everybody has been saying around the league people that are really well plugged in publicly people that I've talked to privately that are really well plugged in have always been saying consistently throughout the year that he's going to the Clippers. They all be wrong, but the same mm-hmm. people that told me LeBron was going to the Lakers back in like January of last year are telling me the same thing about Kawhi to the Clippers and they were right. So right. I'm going to trust them. Okay. I, I, I could agree with that one. It makes sense to yeah. me. Um, uh, let's see here. Uh, we, we, we never, yeah. we never answered Larry Turner's question that he paid $5 for. So let's, let's make sure we oh, address that. Wait, so I don't uh, see the question. Van Fleet and Norm. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I got it covered. So Van Fleet and Norm oh. Powell haven't impacted the series at all is not having OG in the second unit hurting those two. That's a very good question. I like that one. And it's the only explanation, right? I mean, how Van Vliet has completely fallen off. And Powell has sort of never, you know, he's been off and on anyway for his career. But I don't know. I can't figure out what Van Vliet's deal is. And certainly OG being there and not being there is something, right? Yeah, well, I mean, OG was just really valuable in that one. He provides great defensive length. He's, you know, he can rip and go from the elbow. So there was always kind of, it's easy to kick out if Fred Van Vliet's getting overwhelmed by a defender and can kick it to OG. Um, but I think Van Vliet's issue is that the physical, it's just the physicality is, is bothering him. He's, one of the smallest point guards out there. He's getting pushed around. He looks like he's scared to be out there. He doesn't look comfortable driving into the teeth of the defense like he usually does. I mean, he's usually like a fairly fearless player who just has great control of his body and the ball, and he's got great balance, and he's comfortable shooting in tight spaces, and his three-point stroke is usually going, and that's not going right now either. So he just seems just like he's psyched out right now. And I don't even know if they're going to play him really. They might take him out of the rotation for the most part in Game Seven. They might go yeah. down to like a six and a half man rotation. Right. For I mean, I, you know, at this point it's too late. But I would have tried Jeremy Lin at some point. I don't know what you know the deal was. I don't think he played well when he got there. But uh, he, you know, it would have been be- it could have been better than what they're getting from him. But uh, we'll see. But back back still is a problem for him. So I oh, guess is it he's, really? He's still okay. Not active. Yeah. All right. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Too bad. Anyhow, all right, well, we got some other uh, Super Chats in here. So, again, thank you. Which, by the way, before I answer these really quickly, because they're all great questions, do you guys, would you guys want to have me offer, like, exclusive content on YouTube for, uh, like, a monthly fee? They have these super fan things now where you can actually pay. Let me know in the comments or let me know wherever you else so I can see that. And Because uh, I'm, I'm actually looking at it, and I'm wondering if it's worth uh, even trying uh, because it's not often that, you know, I, I, I tried it once like a couple of years ago. And it didn't work out that well but um, on something different. But let me know what you think about that because, uh, you know, I got plenty of content that I don't I, I could create that would be exclusive that you guys would love. Uh, we have Quad MFT uh, in the Super Chat asks, what can the Kings do to improve next season? All right, let's hijack the chat and talk about the Kings for a second. Uh, what do you think? I mean, they they just they hired uh, Luke Walton, 
in a in a really surprising move, they fired the coach anyway. Uh, they fired, um, oh my god, Jaeger, right? Yeah, and that yeah. Was, well, Luke Walton's hired for now. Don't forget what's right. going on with well, him. Well, so. yeah, all right. And that way, that was all really shocking too. The accusations of sexual uh, sexual assault, assault. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, although it's it's gone quiet, so it kind of makes me feel like I don't know. But you're right; it could be something. Uh, it's that, it's going to pop back up. Yeah, but I, I, I think the Kings are in really great shape. I love who they have on their on their team right now as young players. Uh, they do need to figure out a way to maximize them better. And now that they have another season together of experience, they should be better. Uh, they just have to play in the West. Yeah, actually, wait. What is it, what can the Kings do to improve? Okay, um, don't overpay Willie Cauley Stein. Um, they're. I think that they're in a position right now where they don't want to over. So like a lot of teams that are in their stage of building will kind of load up their cap because they figure we're not going to be a player in free agency. And so they'll start committing to some of the players that are like good, but not great. And Willie Colleystein just seems to me the kind of player that if you sign him to 15, 16 a year, he's just all of a sudden going to be an albatross contract yeah. to you. And you know what? Look at Brooklyn. I mean, I know Sacramento obviously is not Brooklyn, but like Brooklyn was a dead end franchise. They took a very similar approach to building their franchise as Sacramento did, even if the way that they acquired a lot of their talent was different. Um, and obviously the circumstances that they had to build under were very different, but I feel like both teams are kind of in a pretty similar position as far as like their qual- caliber of talent and how they're trending upwards. And Brooklyn now is looking like a free agency destination. And if Sacramento can really exhibit that the young talent that they have on board here, and they've got Buddy Heald, who is 27 now, I believe is what we've clarified. So he's like entering his prime, right? Yeah. Uh, but you have Fox, who is 21, I fantastic. think. Fantastic. The fantastic and then, Fox. Um, and then Beasley is 20. Beasley you know, came on really strong. It showed a ton of oh, reason yeah. why they somehow took him over Luka Doncic. And obviously that proved to be a mistake, at least this year. But maybe Beasley will work out for them in the future as a, as a, a superstar. Uh, but they've got... A really good core right there. Oh, you, you, and, you didn't say Bogdanovich. He's my favorite player on my favorite players list. Bogdanovich is really good, but he's not the core that you're selling a potential free agent on necessarily. Okay. And so, yeah, it's it's so um, I, I think that there's a lot to sell to free agents. And, you know, this offseason, there's a ton of cap space out there. So, they might not be lucky in that like they don't have the market cornered on cap space so they can try to learn a really like a like a second tier free agent that couldn't get paid elsewhere although that still could happen but next year they might be able to and i'm sure there's going to you know there's going to be a lot of good talent for for them to pick from next year so i think making sure that they don't give out any contracts that are, like it's really hard to do this, especially as a small market franchise. You have to have the patience to be willing to make the sacrifice to develop a player for four years, and they don't turn out to be quite who you wanted them to be. And if they want you to pay market or even above market price, if they're just not who you want them to be, you have to move on. And that's why your drafting has to be so great, both in the first and the second round, is because you need to have talent behind those guys to come in and fill in for them when they just outperform their contract value. Uh, or wow. underperforming. Yeah, listen, I got, get out of the way of Jared, and he'll break it down for you in, in a beautiful <laughs> way. So we have uh, another one. Uh, let's see. Where is the other question we have that is um, here? Dr. Pineapple. Oh, no. Orlando Biotechnology asks, why is James Harden less aggressive on certain nights? 
You know, it's funny. I just did a breakdown. And by the way, I didn't necessarily want to release the video like at 7 o'clock at night in the Pacific Coast time, but there was like some weird glitch on YouTube. So please go and watch my the Warriors uh, Rockets video I just dropped because it's a really cool dive into how Steph and how Clay shoot based on whether Kevin Durant is on the floor or not. And I came up with some interesting insights I think you guys will enjoy. Uh, so go watch it when we're done with this. But um, someone mentioned, though, in the Game 5 – or game six, uh, no, where are we? Game five, that uh, Harden took like maybe one shot in the last like seven minutes of the game. And like, I, I didn't even have a chance to really go through it to think about it. But like, that's a real problem if, that, if that's really the case. I, I need to check. But um, he, I, I think that he might get stuck in certain situations where he feels like he's not getting calls. Uh, Iguodala, by the way, is a really great equalizer. And in the video that I showed, um, that I, um, I, I have another video actually I'm prepping. I'm sorry, my mind is mush. Uh, about who's the best defender on Harden on the on the um, on the uh, Warriors, and a little quick uh, insight was, obviously it's Iguodala is is really good. Kevin Durant actually had the lowest points per possession against Harden, believe it or not. But what Iguodala does is ends up getting the most assists on him, and I think part of that means is that he does so well that he forces him to pass. And now a lot of those passes are just for scoring opportunities. A lot of them are just to get rid of it because he's pressuring him. And that's, that's the nature of wearing him down when you have uh, Iguodala. You used to have Kevin Durant. You have Klay Thompson. Um, who else can they throw out there? I mean, Livingston a little bit can still do some things. So it's, it, they're kind of perfectly positioned to guard James Harden, wouldn't you say? Yeah. They're, I don't think there's any team in the league that's better equipped to guard him. And Clay is – I trust Clay to be on him the majority of the time. And you know what? I don't think Clay's numbers generally look great on Harden, but this because he's guarding Harden so much of the game, and Harden's the most unstoppable scorer of the of the generation. So, like, as great defense as you're going to play on him, he's going to get his buckets, and you're not going to look like you're completely shutting him out. But I do like your read on the assist numbers for Igudala. I think Igudala, he he's probably just doesn't have the energy now to be able to like track a guy like that the entire game. But <laughs> it looks I like it. Yeah, but I, I'm not seeing him get that tired, are you? Oh, yeah, that's true. No, he's, he's not. But I, but the point I was going to make is if there's any single wing defender in the NBA that you want to guard someone for, you know, one stretch of a game to win the game, I may, maybe besides Kawhi Leonard, is there anyone you'd want more than Andrea Godala? I mean, he's, yeah. he's just the best at it. Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're, they're just lucky that they have, they can throw waves at him and not have to worry about, you know, playing like the jazz did all the jazz had, you know, a big center to, to, to play that way. But uh, let's, let's go to Larry Turner, uh, who it was generous enough earlier today. Uh, tonight was asks Van Vliet and Norman Powell haven't impacted the series at all. Oh, we already asked that. Was no, the we, already, we already, oh, wow. All right. Sorry. Yeah. I'm like behind who should be the Lakers coach. Grant Lau asks. Now this is an interesting question because we haven't really talked about this. <laughs> um, now here's what anyone, I mean, anyone that'll take it. Here was what was fascinating about this. They Tyron Lou, they were like probably an hour away from signing a deal. It sounded like they had some stuff, whatever. And then they insist on bringing Jason kid in to be the assistant and he walked now i i I think everyone understands this i didn't really want to go on twitter and sort of talk about this but let's talk about it here does everybody remember how ty lu got his job in cleveland okay so hold on let's let's get one thing clear and yet you're right you're totally right and so he replaced david blatt david blatt was burying himself and he was digging his own grave the entire time the i don't know how much of it is public but here's what I know about how David Black got fired was oh, the way it was put to me by. Um, I'm going to put you at a close up so we can hear this. I, okay, here we go. I'm trying to think how I can say this. The way it was put to me by someone who knows about the situation. 
um, very intimately knows about the situation is that David Blatt was arguably one of the most famous people in Israel when he was coaching there. He was coaching Maccabi Tel Aviv, right? Wasn't Maccabi Haifa? Yeah. Tel Aviv, right? Yeah. And so Tel- Maccabi Tel Aviv is the biggest sport franchise in this in the country of Israel. And he was the coach, and they were extremely successful on the European stage. So he was a huge deal in that country. And he walked around, and he would walk down the street, and every single person knew who he was. He was like LeBron-level famous, apparently, in Israel, or at least akin to, you know, he was significantly famous. He came to the NBA and expected to have just like, uh, expected to have a Rick Pitino level uh, or, you know, Tom Izzo level of control, like a, you know, entrenched college coach level of control. And he and LeBron obviously clashed over that. That did not work whatsoever. And Blatt would be walking around going, like, why isn't everybody showing me respect? I'm David Blatt. Do you know who I am? And he had this massive ego. And, and you know, I, because I wasn't around Blatt, I don't know if it was necessarily an ego or really just, like, a, an expectation that he was going to get the authority that is expected that the coach is supposed to have. Because, you know, it's like he's been a coach his whole life. And the NBA seems to be like the only place where head coaches don't have significant authority over their team, which I think is obviously a bad thing. But, you know, that's how it's going to go when players are making 40 million bucks. But so he got fired because of that kind of stuff. And Ty Lue is the exact opposite. Ty Lue is one. He's a player who all the players respect. All the coaches also seem to respect Ty Lue. I mean, he had, he was Doc Rivers' protege. And I remember... Ty right right after he retired, he came and he started working for Doc, and he was he was around the Celtics all the time when I first started covering them, and I used to talk to him, and he was he was great. Everybody liked him, and I like Ty, even though he's horrible with the media now. But he's he's great in real life when you're talking to him when the cameras aren't around anymore. Um, and so, all that is to say that Jason Kidd, I don't think has the same gravitas that. Ty Lue has which is ironic to say since Ty Lue like does not have gravitas in front of the media and is terrible when cameras are on but behind closed doors people really seem to respect and like Ty Lue and I have in my interactions with them off the record and so um, I I think the Ty Lue situation is not congruent with Jason Kidd and to get to the reality of the situation sorry I'll stop my rant here is that what really happened based on kind of um, finding the overlap and like the, what six different angles and outlets that were reporting on this between what Woj had and what Ramona uh, Shelburne had, what BA Turner had, who's had an interesting, who's been having some very interesting leaks coming from the Lakers over the last year or so. Um, And then uh, was it Sam Amick and Bill Orem for us uh, had was that uh, and Shams, I think Shams Jirani also had a lot on this one was that, he was Ty Lue accepted Jason Kidd coming on board. And he, as a caveat, he wanted a full five year deal, probably in like the 35 million range or something, which would make him one of the highest paid coaches. And five year deals seem to be pretty standard for accomplished head coaches right now in the NBA. And so he wanted he wanted to be paid commensurate with someone who's won titles, who has demonstrated that he can coach the most uncoachable player in the NBA. And and they basically, you know, told them we're going to line up your contract with LeBron's contract, which is a, a pretty, which, you know, like I'm sure he likes being the LeBron whisperer and the guy that 
finally managed to really get a hold of LeBron besides Spolstra, obviously. But like he doesn't want his he doesn't define his career by that, even if so many of us and the public do. Like he's been working his whole he was a player for a long time. He's been working his whole life to be a coach. He doesn't want to be tied to LeBron. Not to mention he doesn't want his contract and his just career to be stipulated based on whatever the hell LeBron is going to do. Cause he knows if they're giving him that contract, then that means that if LeBron leaves, they're probably going to let him go and put somebody else that they want in there. Right. Fair enough. And, and you're right. The, the, the low ball offer and the, and the, in the short amount of years uh, certainly must've been insulting to him. And I don't know if it's a negotiating ploy, but it just sounds like they're done right there. He walked away. Um, so, okay. Fair enough. I mean, I, I guess he was, if that's the reporting, he was okay with Jason Kidd. I would just think that, you know, uh, he, they're just wait, he's just waiting in the wings to take over your job. He's already been head coach. Uh, you know he wants to be a head coach. And, uh, you know, from personal experience, when you have a, uh, an assistant coach that you don't trust, uh, it just it ruins everything. It could be worse than any other situation you might have. So uh, I could see why he'd, he wouldn't want to have that. But uh, whatever. I mean, either way, it's a mess for the Lakers. Uh, apparently, Lou wasn't even their first choice, uh, right? It's not really clear. I mean, the, there was a report that they that they had Mon- so that it was Monty, Monty Williams, Williams and right. Lou were like the top two candidates, and that allegedly they because you know those guys were being they were getting their interviews done and it was very public, and then the whole situation seemed to go dormant for a little while, and somebody had reported that they did that so that Monty Williams would just eventually balk and take the Phoenix job, and then they would have no one left to choose but. Ty Lu, and so that would be somebody within the organization kind of slipping Ty Lu into the you know into the, the winning by default or winning on the pose situation. Mm-hmm. And really, after this whole Jason Kidd fiasco, if, if for one, the other thing that came out was that apparently, uh, reportedly, um, the front office was trying to force Kurt Rambis onto Luke Walton's staff, and that played a role in Luke getting fired. Oh and, wow! So yeah, Kurt Rambis is just uh, hangs around, man. He just doesn't ever disappear. I don't know how he does it. Like I don't know Kurt personally. I've, I think I've met him once, and he seemed like a nice guy. I don't know. I don't know if he's really qualified or not. I mean, he he has not had any success in his coaching career. But you know, there's a lot yeah. we we and you know, as a coach, there's a lot of coaches out there with horrible records that are really good coaches. They just haven't had the opportunity yet. Like look at Steve Clifford. He's finally getting a chance to turn his record around after. Yeah. All those years, which reminds me, we do have a question about the Hornets. And somebody yes, let's do that right board. now, because I feel bad for Dr. Pineapples, who asks, there we go. What's best for the Hornets this offseason? And it kind of roils my brain because I, I you know, I don't know exactly where, what they're going and what their plan is here. Are you aware of what the free agent situation is for them? Who's off? Uh, who's getting off the books right now? Uh, well, there's this guy named Kemba Walker that's hitting free agency. Oh, Jesus so. Christ. Yeah, that's going to be a problem. You know what? Dr. Pineapples, if you can answer this in the comments. How do you feel about Kemba Walker leaving? Because I think all of us around the NBA want to see Kemba Walker go to New York, one of the New York teams, where he'll be the hometown hero. He's a he's true. He's a great player who has been stuck on a on the treadmill of mediocrity his whole career, and you know people think like people because I covered the Celtics. People think I'm biased and that I want to see Anthony Davis leave New Orleans. I couldn't care less where Anthony Davis goes. I mean, it'd be great if I could cover him, but also he's not a very exciting person to cover as, as a media person. So whatever. But like, it's just that you hate seeing these all-time great players get stuck on teams that are just stuck in the 30s to 40s. And Kemba is this guy that. I think maybe three years ago we thought he was like turning into an all-star. And in the last two years, it's been apparent that he's like a borderline superstar. 
if he was playing in New York this whole time, he'd be an absolute bona fide superstar. But he's stuck in a team that is both a small market and has not been successful. And I think just for the for his sake and for the sake of the NBA, it would just be so great if he could move to a larger franchise where he has a chance to one be like a real superstar where he gets the media attention that's commensurate with his game, which is extremely exciting to watch and is aesthetically pleasing and has a chance to really compete because he's done everything you could want. He has been everything you could want as an, as an NBA player. He's a good, he's a great leader, great clubhouse guy and incredibly exciting talent and is really part of the trend of players evolving as you know, he's been like at the forefront of the evolution of the position yeah. as well. Right. The only question here is, is he like, you know, getting stats on a bad team um, or is he a guy who will his stats will improve and get more efficient by being on a better team? I, I definitely feel like he's in that latter group where he is a bona fide all star and good uh, despite the situation around him. Um, in fact, and I think that, yeah, he would probably end up you'd see better numbers from him. I mean, I'm just looking at this past year. I mean, 25.6 points a game. Um, anybody he shot, you know, 356 from three point land on a high volume and 43% from the field, from the field, which actually isn't even that off, you know, a, a typical player who you think was like, Oh, he's only good on a bad team would probably be closer to 40%, right. Uh, on field goal percentage overall yeah. and like 32%, but he has like a lot of assists and a lot of whatever. So, um, you know, and he doesn't even have that many assists again, had he, had he played on a team with better players, he, he probably gets eight or nine assists a game. I imagine. Um, so yeah, I, I think that he's probably gone. That's, that's going to decimate Charlotte even worse because they're not going to get anybody to replace him. Uh, so it looks like they're heading for the lottery. They're already in the lottery, but even lower in the lottery. Yeah. And I mean, as far as cap space, if the cap does come in at one Oh nine, then they're going to have, let's see if MKG and Marvin Williams opt in, that's 18 million right there. So they're going to have about 16 million in a cap space. If they if they let go of Tony Parker, William and Gomez, Twain Bacon, they're not going to extend the QO to Frank Kaminsky, obviously, especially mm -hmm. after they screwed him over and didn't release him when he so badly wanted to get released. So mm -hmm. they're stuck because they're stuck paying. They're paying Nick Batum and Bismack Biombo forty three, forty two and a half million right, right now. And Cody Zeller's on a 50, you know, 14, 15 million dollar a year contract. And Zeller's like solid, but he's not quite worth that money. No. Um, but yeah, so sixteen million isn't enough for them to replace Kemba with like a big star, yeah. and they're not going to have the draft pick that they need to you know really replace them. So they're they're stuck on the treadmill of mediocrity for you know for more now. But I think at this point they should just just be trying to shed as much salary. I mean, this off season they can't shed too much, but next off season they can pretty much clear the books except for Cody Zeller. I think is the only person I can think of. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Oh no, Nick Batum is a twenty-seven million dollar player option. Yeah, um, yeah, he's signing that one. So it's, and they'll have yeah. and they'll have the team options on Malik Bunk and Miles Bridges, which are right. no-brainers. So yeah. Now remember, Mitch Kupchak is now the executive there, so I suspect he will get some stuff cleaned up. But it's going to take him several years, I imagine, before they get it in order. Um, we have another really good question here from Lovely Day uh, as part of a super chat. Thank you. Um, where do you stand on the trading Embiid or Simmons debate? On, on the trading Embiid or Simmons debate. Um, 
I'll throw it out there real quick. Uh, let's see what my take. Obviously, here's the only question. The only reason why you'd ever even consider trading Embiid is because you think he's going to get hurt again and he's never going to be a player who plays more than 50 games a year. Otherwise, it's a no-brainer. And then in that context, then you simply don't trade him because I don't think you can I don't think you can you can run a franchise assuming injury like that. Now, that said, the way he runs, and I've talked about this before, uh, indicates to me that, you know, I think he'll have perennial injuries to his knees, the way he shuffles like that. So, um, but you, you can't, you can't, he's, he's a, a great star. He is, he, you know, uh, has that certain thing, you know, that, that star power that you need to have and will fill seats. Uh, now Ben Simmons though, I mean, I'm always partial to shooting. So a guy like that who can't shoot and he doesn't know how to shoot and clearly doesn't have the training to help him get better. Um, is a, is a guy who I would look to trade to get the most I can. Uh, the question then is, is when is his value the highest? I suppose if he continues and, you know, like he did, and let's, let's say they win this series uh, and they get to the conference finals and he plays well, like, yeah, this would be a, probably a really good time to get uh, a maximum value for him. So if you had to trade either one of them, if that is sort of the context of the question, then I'm saying, yeah, you got to trade Simmons. I trade neither, but Ben Simmons – could be had if you blow me away with something complex and fascinating. You give me a player that, well, you would want like a Tobias Harris type of player or maybe a Jimmy Butler type of player. Like if they keep that whole thing together, I don't really see the point of trading him because you can't trade. It's it, it's very unlikely that you can trade Ben Simmons in a one-for-one one deal where you're getting commensurate value. Right, because it's a rookie contract, right? Yeah, well, well, I guess that too. But just like he's such, he's such a massive. He's one of the best prospects in the NBA. He's already an All Star, so it's like it's just so hard to find someone that's worthwhile uh, to make that trade for. I, I can't think of anyone that I could even imagine being on the market. Although I assume you know Simmons is also someone who's not on the market, so it would have to be for someone who isn't on the market. And so, you know, Simmons, I th- we're seeing it here is that. There's still there's so much potential. Just if he changes, his, if he just increases his aggression and changes his mindset and his footwork and stuff like that, even without that 12 footer that we have agreed in previous podcasts is really all he needs to really kind of just create that you know create that pull to get out of the paint and be you know be useful. He doesn't even have to do what Giannis is doing now, hitting spot up shots from uh, 25 feet, which is like mind-blowing and we should talk about that at some point because the league could be broken open by Giannis that by next year if not already right now yeah but Simmons there's so much there's so much there and I've been really low on Simmons and I've criticized him a ton and last year I said that he is like I said that he was terribly overrated and that the Celtics showed how you can shut him down and it's I still feel the same way but there's only a few teams that can shut him down it's only happening in the playoffs really and he's going to continue to grow. And we have to, like, like, he was a rookie last year, and that happens. Like, he's, it takes these guys, like, five years. Like, Giannis has been in the league for five, six years now, six years, mm-hmm. right? So, like, he, it took him a long time to get to this. It takes these guys a long time. And mo- it, it's just that Simmons is on the stage way earlier than you would expect. So, I have a lot of confidence that he's going to continue to grow. Um, what you said about the shooting thing is right. And I think I've talked to you off the record about this, and I'm not going to go into it on the record right now just because something I'm going to be reporting at some point. There's a lot more reporting I have to do on this, but there is is a story to why Ben Simmons is still shooting the way he is and why it's not changing. And it's not – let's just say Ben Simmons is not an idiot and is not completely unaware of of 
many people who are very well qualified saying he needs to change his shot. There are many reasons to do it. I'm not going to be able to go into it right now, but maybe if we get like, if there's someone that wants to pay like $10,000 for a private stream, maybe we can talk about it there. Or okay. Like there you go. But, <laughs> I'll sell, I'll sell my journalistic integrity for 10,000 a stream, but all right. uh, no, not well, really. But speaking of integrity, we, Dr. Pineapples, again, we just want to thank you for being part of the super chat. This really gracious uh, thing that you're doing. And thanks for the, the nice words. Andrew Zhao, Andrew Zhao, probably, is Eric Gordon's contract the best bargain? And thank you for being part of the Super Chat again. A great question. Uh, I, do you know what is Eric Gordon's getting paid? Aaron Gordon or Eric Gordon? Eric Gordon. Eric Gordon. Rockets. I can tell you that in eight. It's probably seconds. like, I'm going to guess that he's getting like yeah, I think uh, he's at 14 million this year. Oh. I think it's like 13 and a half this year. Yeah. Uh, 13 and a half. Yep. There we go. And That's then 14, 14 next year. Yeah. It's a great bargain. I mean, the guy's pretty much a starter for them. Uh, I guess it's a starter for them now. Uh, just uh, Here's the funny thing about Eric Gordon. I mentioned on Twitter and wherever else I've talked about it is he's the one guy who he'll hit some shots and you're like, God, the guy's on fire. And then you check the box score and he's like two for eight <laughs> or like three for 11. It's crazy. But he hits timely shots when he does. And he does go on rolls. He's very streaky. Uh, but, but man, he's just tough. He can take it to the rack. The guy is probably like my height. He might be like six, one in shoes and yet he can finish at the rim too. So I'm impressed with what he can do with what his physical package is. And, uh, and there's no question of the, the rockets, uh, it fits, they, he fits them perfectly. Yeah. By the way, I, um, people are asking what year Simmons is. I was saying last year he was a rookie and then he got shut down. This year is his second year, although technically it's his third year in the NBA, second yeah. year playing, whatever. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Eric, I feel like Eric Gordon goes like three for 11 or like five for 15 or something like that from three. Like for him, it's just like he he'll hit enough threes that it feels like he's you know, getting it in, but like in reality, the percentages are bad, but Hey, every once in a while, he has like a seven for 11 game. And that's when he completely, you know, completely wins the game single-handedly. And yeah, and you're right. He does his damage in the fourth, a lot of the time. And that's, that's what's great about him is he is a really good crunch time player. Right. And, and from deep, like that wing three, he takes from the logo basically is there's no closeout. You can't get there. <laughs> it's great. <I> right. <laughs> and he's really, he's really strong, really powerful. I mean, he can really yeah. get to the rim. And I don't know why I'm just remembering this now. Um, there's a guy out of Iowa State named Talon Horton Tucker, who I scouted when he was in high school, and he is like a carbon copy of Eric Gordon. Like the body, the shooting style, like everything about him is like exactly like Eric Gordon. Like short, super bulky, you know, like pop shooter, kind of like that. You should check. I think you'll find him interesting, and everybody watching should check him out. He's probably going to go late first round, I'd imagine. Uh, All right, well, let, let's run through really quickly some, uh, some you know, comments I want to get through as we get to the end of our, our stream here. Daniel Evans had an interesting uh, suggestion for Becky Hammond could be Lakers head coach. Um, you know, do you think that she's going to be head coach at some point? Probably, yeah. I mean, she's moving up the ladder in San Antonio. San Antonio's top assistants keep getting targeted. Um, so she's getting towards a point where she'll be in that chair and she'll get targeted because the interviews that she's been getting, I think are mostly a lot of the similar interviews that kind of like backbench coaches get where it's like teams identify that these are going to be really good coaching prospects down the road or could be targets for like hot, you know, for like first or second mm -hmm. chair assistant. And so they use her opening as a chance to interview them, knowing that they're most likely not going to, that they're, they're not going to hire them as the coach but they could the next time around or they could be moving them up so um i mean 
everybody loves Becky Cammon in San Antonio. She's she's a very well regarded coach. Um, you know, when she was coming up for coaching interviews, she was pretty early in her career to be getting getting the job. So, but then again, there's a lot of other you know recently retired players that are getting the shot. And I mean, I know she's not she's from a different league, obviously, but um, mm-hmm. she was she's one of the best players ever in in her league, and so. I feel like it's not terribly different than like Ty Lue getting hired pretty quickly yeah. or kind of climbing through the ranks pretty quickly. So I wouldn't be surprised to see her do it in a couple of years. Yeah. She's got, she has a very serious energy about her when you, if you're near her, it's like, uh, which I think is good. Like she, yeah, you're she's going to take her seriously. Yeah. yeah. She's intense. That's the word I'm looking for. Yes. Uh, in a way that, uh, that probably will help. And, because she's, you know, not going to be able to afford any mess. Like she's going to have to get in there and make these men, you know, listen to her. Um, and she's got that good energy. So, and she's certainly learning from the best. So that will be uh, a, yeah. you know, and, a good situation. And let's be real about it. Like if you're a woman who's going to succeed in that position, you have to usually probably bring a combination of being like very like stern and very serious and very aggressive with the work, but also have kind of a lighter side and she'll be able to kind of be playful too. And so I think she seems to balance that pretty well. And, you know, Nancy Lieberman, who's been a coach in the NBA for a long time, she's always had that reputation. There's a couple other coaches, I think, female coaches in the league right now too, right? Well, there's, there's Natalie Nakase at the uh, yeah. Clippers. And uh, I think she's a bench coach now, or she, she was, she was the, uh, 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 I want to say individual instruction player development. Um, but yeah, she's around. I don't. There's a, there's a few others. I think I'm blanking. But um, well, the, yeah. it's the Pacers have one of their senior basketball, like assistant director of basketball ops, is female. Okay. Who's a pretty recent hire, I believe. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's growing. It's great. It's I mean, you're seeing diversity, you know, racial diversity and gender diversity is increasing on the bench and in front offices more and more now. Yeah. Uh, okay. We got another interesting question as we wrap up here. New Doughboy asks, well, where did his go? Yes. Uh, do you think it would be it would benefit the NBA to maybe get rid of some teams to stretch the good talent around more, like the Hornets, the Grizz, Suns? They could go, honestly. You know what? And Adam Silver has actually just quoted about maybe lessening the number of games in a season. And part of the other question then is, okay, maybe if you squeeze the games lower, then yeah, then maybe you get a team or two out. Like, it'll never, ever happen. There's too much money to be made. But I would think it would make it better. I do think that we have a couple of uh, – we just have too many teams – and not enough. Now, the question only now is, is as we globalize more and more and the training gets better and better, maybe, you know, in a few more years, we will have enough teams uh, or enough players to fill these teams with good players and everyone will be closer to 500. Uh, but what do you think? I think it's definitely don't contract the number of teams. Contraction, I think, is never ideal. Um, there is more than enough talent because you're right. Um, the way that the NBA has been doing an amazing job of setting up all their global academies, they're bringing over so much talent. I mean, just look at how many players are coming over from Africa now. Look at how many players from Africa and Australia are in Canada. Just those three countries are a big part of just probably the what's going on right now in Europe, too. I mean, we have... How many of the stars that are playing right now are even American born? Like half, at least in these series right now, like yeah. half of them, really. It's amazing. So the it's going to continue to grow. The NBA Africa academies are getting more and more talent over every year. Now they have a Latin American academy, and that you know Latin American basketball is like like it's. I can't think of anybody off the top of my head right now besides like Eduardo Najera is from Mexico, right? So like yeah. there there's a huge there's a huge uh, you know swath of the of the world that isn't really tapped and of course there's brazil and argentina um 
And like Puerto Rico has a huge basketball league, and we I there's only one Puerto Rican player that I can think of in JJ Perea. So like there's you know, there's lots of countries where you can get more players coming from. So yeah, there's gonna be more and more players coming. Not to mention, uh, as football continues to die at the youth levels, you're gonna have more and more of those great athletes coming over to basketball as well. Yes, thank so, you for for, for uh, feeding into my football uh theories about how it's going to be uh, extinct in yeah. 10 years but um, there's going to be a ton of you know, a ton of young wide receivers tight ends running backs that are all going to make great guards uh yeah. you know, in the future okay uh let's let's finish this with a great question um from eddie, eddie hollins asks or saying i was saying hood should start for portland but i think he should keep coming off the bench now that's the one thing is we kind of skipped over the second game a little bit here uh, at least the details <laughs> right but um so rodney hood mama and somebody wanted me to give a rodney hood mama and i i meant to do it earlier but rodney hood mama nonetheless um he, he's you know his role is great off the bench it really fits because you know teams traditionally have wanted that like spark plug who can score off the bench but i'm you know you're looking at harkless you're looking at aminu and I'm wondering if if Hood could could you know in a game seven when you want to get off to a good start you know replace one of those guys. The biggest problem I have is that you know with Harkless has uh, Murray on him, and I'm not even sure it's that you know I, I actually it's a good idea for Denver simply because they're goading uh, ISO post ups from Harkless, and it's not a good look. He's not good at that. It's not part of their offense. He's not scoring, and they keep doing it. So please stop. But um, I'm just wondering, yeah, if maybe there's there's a way that they should just shove um, Hood in there or not. What do you think? I mean, I think you only do it if you're playing a seven-man rotation and you're playing Hood 40 minutes because Hood's been great because he's playing with CJ in the second unit and Evan Turner, and they're able to uh, – the E.T. is able to e- – E.T. almost like works as like a role man half the time too. He like gives a ball up and then becomes like a pick-and-roll playmaker. He had tonight a couple great passes being like he a pick-and-roll playmaker. He but did. you can't mess with that balance because E.T. It was, was really valuable tonight. And if you don't have the right balance around him, it could be a massive negative because they're not because they're not guarding up on him high usually. Yeah, so yeah. I I wouldn't mess with that balance because the the Blazers are winning because their offense is consistent throughout the game, and that's because yeah. Hood and CJ are playing so well off of each other. And hey, Zach Collins up until the like you know fourth quarter basically was amazing in this game. Yeah, I I've always liked Zach Collins. And I think he's developing really nicely, and he'll he's getting there, getting there closer and closer. Um, Evan Turner is terrible. Uh, generally he had two nice passes, but he also came in like the first three plays were really just a nightmare. So they got to limit his minutes, even though he's probably only playing like nine anyway. But here's the thing that's interesting that that starting five for Portland did not start out well in the game. They were, they couldn't stop anybody. They were losing by eight or nine points throughout that long stretch. So I was wondering like, geez, do you change up the second half starting lineup? Because teams never do that. Almost never every once in a while, maybe. But in my mind, that second unit did so well, maybe Stott should have said, Hey, we should put Hood in that starting lineup. They are in for the second half. They didn't do that, and lo and behold, that first five actually did better. All of a sudden, they could get some stops. Denver, you know, blinked, and they were able to control it. So it's interesting to see how half to half. You never know what's going on. It's almost like you can't use the first half information to dictate what you want to do in the second half. And it worked out well for them tonight. But I would have a much shorter leash in a game seven and have Rodney Hood on that bike, you know, riding it ready to go as quickly as possible when they need him. And one thing is, so Aminu is he at least spaces the floor well. I mean, he gets really streaky with the shooting. Sometimes he's bearing everything. Sometimes he's, you know, missing the rim. But when he's on, he's on. And he at least knows how to rip and go if he can attack a closeout. Harkless, his defense, 
is so vital. If you were to take him out and put Hood in there, I feel like Millsap would have a field day. Like Millsap would just um, take everybody to the block and destroy. But he's him. already having basically a field day as it is. Yeah, but he's not dropping thirty, and he could if they didn't have the right defensive combination enough, out there. Enough. Well, yeah. well, listen, you just dropped thirty uh, tonight in this in this podcast. So uh, thank you so much for that, and everybody else out there. Fantastic stuff. I mean, this was a, our best one yet, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it, well, every single one we do is the best one. But the, so this is one of the best ones. Always improve. I feel bad. We have there's like a hundred questions here. I mean, I could stay up at least until four in the morning my time. So if you want to answer every one of these questions, we can. But well, you know, listen, yeah. everyone. Jared's cell phone number is six one seven. You can call him directly. So we got to end it now because it's been over an hour. So we, we and I got to get to bed soon. So anyway, <laughs> awesome stuff. I love uh, someone says the foot show will forever be my favorite show. The the foot show, the nightmare from the last, legendary yeah. foot show. I, yeah, I don't know why. I mean, listen, I, my wife heard. I told her I did that, and she thought I was like looked at me like I, you know, she, she was gonna. Run I couldn't believe house. you did that. That was insane. It was it was the fact <laughs> that you were just so ready to just like do it just because someone like. Uh, made a donation you're like oh yeah sure why not yeah. like i I, def- I wouldn't have done it so you're you're a brave man and i don't know it's, the, just, it's just a foot you're, to me <laughs> you're a true you're a true hero of the people all right well thank you so much jared thank you everyone else out there on periscope and certainly on youtube that's really where it's at these days it's fantastic Jigalopuff, thank you there uh dr pineapples lovely day quad mft larry turner orlando biotechnology andrew zoo dr pineapples again omari confer all you guys were fantastic in the super chat Awesome stuff, and uh, we will be right back. I mean, we'll do it again when. I guess uh, when is that going to be? The next time we do it is, I don't know, next week. Uh, I don't know. Uh, tomorrow's Sorry, my mom's Thursday. birthday, so not oh. tomorrow. Ch- happy, happy birthday, birthday Mrs. Mom. Weiss. Thank All you. Right. Uh, so maybe Saturday. Ooh. Um, I think, yeah, I'm actually out tomorrow night. And actually, then, I might uh, have concert tickets. Let's make our plans in front of 550 people or whatever. All right, you got it. Well, either way, we'll figure, again, we'll figure it out and let you people know. Awesome stuff. We will see you as soon as we can. I'll make sure I'll put a little notice on YouTube uh, on the, in, the, in the community. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel. We are a conversation. You in? Are you in, Jared? I'm in Mother's Day mode.